Good to see you this evening. We are in Romans chapter 8, and you heard a, a nice lengthy passage read a few moments ago. I'm going to ask you to turn once again to Romans chapter 8. While you're turning, I just wanted to say thank you to each of you for finding it important to be out yet again in the Lord's house today. We've had kind of a nicky day, haven't we? But nevertheless, it's always good to be with God's people and good for another opportunity for worship and good for another opportunity for God to meet with us and encourage us and help us in the new and coming week. I'm not going to reread the passage that was read well for you a moment ago. I just want to call your attention to a phrase of one verse that we know all too well, verse number 28. If you'll look at that, we'll uh, have a word of prayer together and then look into the message tonight. Here the Bible says, and we know that, all, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are here tonight to thank and praise you and to worship you for who you are. We know that you are a good, great, and loving God. And we thank you, Father, for your providential care over our lives. We thank you that we can celebrate that tonight. And I pray, Father, that in the message tonight, you will be glorified, that you will work in our hearts and lives, meet our needs, encourage us, draw us closer to you, Thank you that we have every assurance as we gather tonight, not only of your presence, but of the fact that you know our downsitting, you know our uprising, you understand our thoughts afar off. Thank you that you know us better than we know ourselves. So you know exactly what we need tonight. We simply pray that our hearts will be open to it. I pray, Lord, that you would just cleanse and fill me tonight, help me to be a, a vessel meet and fit for the Master's use and, Lord, would you just grant to me that portion of the freedom, liberty, and power of the Holy Spirit that is needed to minister effectively tonight. For I pray these things now in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, I want to continue tonight in the little series that I introduced you to some weeks back in the first opportunity that I had, which is called Paul Uncertainties. I just want to call your attention to something. That word certainties, it keeps reaching out to me. It keeps touching my heart for the simple reason that, you know, one of the reasons that God is so concerned that we be assured of things that are so important in his word and then takes the trouble to call out certain things and paint them in big, bold, black letters for us is because doubt is such an effective tool that Satan uses. Maybe more on that in a few moments, but I want you to think about that a little bit tonight. Now, you know, you can really broaden this out to the entire Bible, but we're just sort of narrowing the scope a little bit and talking about certain statements that the Apostle Paul makes. I take you back to the fact that if you look in the Bible, you'll find at least 16 times that the Apostle Paul said either I know, we know, or ye know. Several of those actually occur in this chapter, which is one reason that we're spending another uh, opportunity for a message in it. You can broaden that out, as I mentioned before. You can take three other occasions where Paul says, I am persuaded. And when you put these things together, albeit a few of these statements that he makes saying something like I know or ye know or we know are more casual in nature. Others really call out certain truths. They're towering truths. They're mountain peak truths. They're truths that we really need to allow God to speak to our hearts about. So I've organized these into six and we've looked at two of them so far. And I want to remind you what the ground that we've covered because it sort of sets the stage for where we are tonight and what I want to talk about in introducing you again to the subject of God's providence. So 
We started this by talking about the gospel. God is determined that you and I be certain about the gospel. Hard to think of anything really that we would need to be more certain about, but the gospel is one of those things. Knowing that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, God wants us to be absolutely certain that when we trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we understand this is his plan for salvation and this is the way to heaven. And so we looked at that verse in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12 where Paul says, "For I, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded. You know, double dose in this. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I'm just sort of distilling this. That's not all we talked about in that message. But it's absolutely essential that we be certain of the gospel. Well, then beyond that, you can ask yourself, well, all right, I'm saved. But does doubt ever creep in? Do you wonder if you are saved as saved today as the day you trusted Christ? Do you come up against certain obstacles and difficulties in life that make you question or doubt? And God wants us to be certain about our security in Christ. And so you come to the end of this chapter and verses 20, uh, 39, 38 and 39, for I am sure, King James says, for I am persuaded. So there's one of those. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, so think about this a little bit tonight. So God wants us to be absolutely certain about salvation. Then he wants us to be absolutely certain that we're secure in Christ. But did it ever stop to occur to you, I'm sure it has, maybe not quite in this context, that between point A that I mentioned and point B over here that I mentioned, there's a lot of ground to cover. I mean, between the time that you become a Christian and the time that you are with the Lord in glory, there is everything that transpires in this earthly scene. All the sorrows, all the heartaches, all the problems, all the trials. And so the question kind of naturally occurs, occurs, well, God is great about salvation and God is great about assuring us that we're going to finally make it to glory, but what about everything that goes on in between? Or to use kind of a common phrase, what about when bad things happen to good people? You've encountered that. That's kind of a popular way of referring to this. And did you know that phrase has been around at least since 1981? That's quite a few years. How did, how did it burst on the scene? Well, it burst on the scene because a rabbi by the name of Harold Kushner found out that his three-year-old son received a diagnosis from the doctors that he had some kind of a degenerative disease and wasn't expected to live past his middle teen years. And when he found out about that, it obviously threw him into the kind of tailspin that you might have expected it to. And he ended up writing this book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Do you know that since 1981 that book has sold more than 4 million copies? That tells you something, doesn't it? Tells you that this kind of resonates with people. Kind of reminds us of the fact of what we read about in this passage tonight, that you know, we we live in a broken world, and we really can't run from that. It's the truth. You and I are, are going out every day to face a world that's cursed by sin and to face the brokenness 
and the heartache and the tears that come as a result of this. And being a Christian doesn't exempt you from those things. In fact, one of the more casual references to one of Paul's I knows is right in verse 22. And he says this, for we know. I don't know if you noticed that in the reading tonight. He says, for we know. Everybody knows this, whether you're a Bible believer or not. You just sort of by intuition, everyone knows this, maybe not knows the theology behind it. But everyone knows this. The whole creation has been groaning together, verse 22, in the pains of childbirth until now. I mean, just look around you, but it's not just creation. It's not just thinking of it impersonally. It's thinking about it personally. Look at verse 23, and not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the fruits of the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So I have a question for you, and you don't have to admit it tonight. Did you ever groan? You don't have to be older to groan. You just have to kind of be caught up in life as it is in this world. And many times we sigh, many times we groan. I want to tell you something tonight, folks. This Romans chapter 8 reaches out and really grabs you because one of the things you see here tonight is Paul doesn't try to run from this. Paul doesn't just give us these lofty things about the gospel being assured and eternal security being assured. I want to show you something that's a real blessing to me. If you look in verse number 17, you have the first reference in the chapter to glorified. And so it says, if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So notice the word glorified there. Then drop down to verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So between verse 17 and verse 30, what does he do? He plops right into that theme of glorification and the glory that awaits us with the, subjects of, with, the subject, with, a, with a discussion of suffering. Verse number 17, if so be, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified together. And Paul works his way through this. What's the answer to all of this? Well, he's working his way toward this great certainty, this great Paulan certainty that concerns God's providence in verse number 28. But what I want to do is broaden this a little bit tonight so that we're trying to deal not just with verse 28, although that's kind of really what I want to work towards. But this is kind of one of those sermons where I kind of want to preach my way to my text. And so what I'd like to have you consider with me tonight is that here in these verses, verses 17, 18, if you will, down to verse 30, you have Paul talking about this subject of suffering, and in the, in the context, in the unfolding of this discussion, he tells us, you know what we need? I'm willing to listen if Paul is telling me what I need. What we need is the right response in three areas. And the first one of them is perspective, and the second one of them is help, and the third one, which is kind of what I'm trying to get to here tonight in the message is providence. But I think it's worth spending some time with the first two because Paul says we need the right response to these things in the context of suffering. What's the right perspective in the context of suffering? Well, you know, when problems hit, disaster strikes, hardship comes, 
and pain infuses our lives, the very thing that we tend to do is the worst thing we can do, which is to kind of turn inward. And this is exactly what Satan does. This is exactly why doubt is such an effective tool in Satan's hand, because if he can distract us from the great truths, the great certainties of Scripture, cause us to turn within and be thinking about the pain, the difficulty, asking the question why, and to become self-absorbed, well, we lose our focus and we lose our perspective, and our perspective becomes self-bound rather than Christ-bound, then you're in trouble. I promise you, then you're in trouble. The moment your attention turns to yourself, the moment you start spending all your time thinking about the problems, the difficulties, and all the things that have come into your life that really shouldn't have come into your life and that aren't fair, and why did those things happen? Satan's got you, and your eyes are off of the Lord and the great truth that he designs in order to give us the power to go through these circumstances and these situations. So that's the worst thing that can happen. So Paul reminds us some things about suffering that, that really comprise the right perspective. And there are two things in this statement. First of all, that suffering is preparatory, and then that suffering is temporary. Those might seem like cold truths until you really digest them for a moment. Look up in verse 17. This is the idea that suffering is preparatory. And he says, if children, he's established the fact that this salvation makes us the children of God. He says he gives the Spirit to us in order to assure us that we're the children of God. And then he develops this just a bit further, and he says, if children then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. And then he says this, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified together. Personally, I would prefer a slightly different rendering than what we use here in the ESV. The ESV says provided. And looking at this in the original, I think the better force of this is, is brought out by since indeed. And so if you look at it that way, he says, if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, since indeed. I mean, this is a certainty. This is going to happen. You don't have to be a martyr, folks. Like, we need to get out of our minds tonight that the people that suffer well, those are kind of just the martyrs, and you read about them in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Well, you certainly do. But here's the thing. If you're a child of God, this is all part of being a child of God. This is a part of being an heir of Christ. And so he brings this out by, by talking about suffering with him, that we may be glorified with him. And it's really important for us to understand that Paul's not saying anything here about suffering being meritorious. He's not saying we earn our way to heaven because we suffer with Christ. He's simply saying that the suffering that accrues to us in this life as we follow Christ's path simply makes it all the more appropriate for God to allow us to share his glory. Think about that for a moment. It just makes it all the more appropriate and you think, this is the path that our Savior trod. I mean, Jesus Christ came into this world, he suffered. And we don't know about, I mean, we don't often think about any suffering that he had outside of the suffering that he did on our behalf and the suffering as a result of sin. But I often think about rejection. I often think about the fact, you know, rejection is one of the most painful things you can experience in life. And yet it happens. And 
what does it tell me in Isaiah chapter 53? He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And I think about the suffering and the tears and the trials and the heartache that our Savior knew. I think about, to me, one of the most eloquent verses in the Bible when Jesus gathered there with the two sisters and Lazarus was dead and they were all broken up because of the loss of their brother and the Bible says Jesus wept. And I think about this and I think about the fact that, you know, it just makes it all the more appropriate as we go through this life and we appropriate His grace and the sufferings that He allows to come to us, whether they're physical, whether they're spiritual, regardless of kind that they might be, and makes it all the more appropriate that one day, because we suffer with Him, that we shall also reign with Him. Paul tells us this also. So suffering is preparatory, but suffering is also temporary. If you look at this in verse 18, Paul says, For I consider... Here you have a word of mental reckoning. Here's somebody who's thought through the process and says, you know what, this is my studied conclusion. That's really what this means. My studied conclusion is that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. And so the sufferings that we experience as a part of living, not just as a Christian, but as a part of living in this broken world that we live in, we have the wonderful consolation of maintaining the right perspective on them and realizing they're preparatory, that they will one day end in our sharing the glory of Christ, and they are temporary. They're confined to this earthly scene. Now, you know, Paul talks about this somewhere else, and so I want to bring you over here and let you look at these verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Have a look at this. So Paul says, so we do not lose heart, though our out outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, they're temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I really love the way John MacArthur handles this passage. He talks about the fact that there are three principles here to enable us not to lose heart. Well, I need that, do you? I find it's very easy to lose heart. It's very easy to, to be caught up in these sufferings and these difficulties and these trials and to become discouraged and to lose heart. And here's the way MacArthur, if you look at these verses, let me back them up for a moment and we'll try to, to go forward through them once at a time. In verse 16 he says, first of all, we should value spiritual strength over physical. In verse 17, he says we should value the future over the present. And in verse 18, he says we should value the eternal realities over the temporal. A lot of truth there. Wish I had time. But I was thinking about this a little bit this week. I was thinking a lot about this this week, to be honest with you. And I don't mean any, you have to understand the way in which I was saying this, but I thought about school. Now, some people love school, some people don't. I did not dislike school. I disliked a few things in school. But I did not dislike school. Good thing, too, because I was thinking, you know, between the time I was age 5 and age 28, when I was done with everything to do with formal schooling, 
That's 23 years. 23 years tied up with school from K-5 to all postgraduate work. Then I got to thinking, good night. That's a third of my life. Then I got to thinking, well, Moses is making me look good. I got to thinking about Moses, and, you know, it's been said about Moses, he spent 40 years serving in Pharaoh's court learning to be somebody. He spent another 40 years on the backside of the desert learning to be nobody. And then he spent 40 years serving God, leading his people out of Egypt. I guess the point I'm trying to make is, when I think about school, I think about the fact that, well, you know, it was preparatory, and it was temporary. It doesn't, in the formal sense at least, comprise all of life. And you know, when the final gong sounded on all the, the work to be done in school, I knew I was free to go do the thing I'd been training to do, particularly in all the college and graduate years. Well, we have to move along. That right perspective is really important. But the takeaway from this, the right response to this, is to wait patiently. Don't you love it? That, that word wait is one of those favorite words you encounter in the Bible, and it's in verse number 25 as Paul concludes this section on the right perspective, and he says, but if we hope for what we do not see, Paul talked about looking at the things that are invisible and he says, if we hope for what we do not see, then do we with patience wait for it. And I don't like to be told to wait, and I'm sure you don't like to be told to wait, but I just have to tell you tonight, that's what God is telling us we need to do. And I hate to wait. Particularly if you find the circumstances that you're in are not always the most pleasant. But God says, I'm doing something. I'm doing something good. You just need to wait. I'll show you. Well, what about the help of the Spirit? There's something else that we need the right response to, and that's the help of the Spirit. Well, the truth of the matter is we just flat out need the right response to help, period. Help is a little bit like gift, a gift. Some people don't know how to accept a gift. You try to give them something because you're, you love them or you really appreciate with, oh, no, 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 yeah, and they just... Help is a little bit that way. Sometimes people offer to help and we just can't seem to accept the help. What is it? We don't need the help? We're too good for the person to help us? I don't know. It's a strange quirk of human nature. But God understands that we need help and God reminds us in this passage that we need help, so much so that he says in verse 26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And then he gives us another example. He seems to be talking about things that we know. Now he talks about some things we don't know. He says, you know what? Our infirmity is so great that we don't even know how we should pray as we ought. Think about that. I mean, when the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And that was a really good request because we don't know what we're doing. I think about that passage in Mark chapter 10, and I'm not going to have you turn to this, and I don't have the verses here on the screen because... I want to force myself not to spend too much time with it, but do you remember that story in the Gospels where Mark is, is so kind, he says, the sons of Zebedee. They came to Jesus. That's James and John, in case you don't know. <laughs> and I, I just, it just tickles me. Mark is kind. is the sons of Zebedee. And 
they came to Jesus and they said, Master, we would that you would do for us whatever we ask. Nothing big. But we want you to do whatever it is we want to ask you for. And Jesus just sort of humored them and he said, well, what's that? <laughs> Colloquially, what's that? And they said, well, we, we want to have the seat on the left and the seat on the right in your kingdom. Oh, that's not so big of a request, is it? Just the two most preeminent positions in the kingdom. That's all they asked for. Think about that. And if you look at that passage beginning in Mark chapter 10, verse 38 and 39, you know what Jesus says to them? I'm going to just paraphrase this, but this is exactly what he says to them. You don't know what you're asking for. I mean, look it up if you don't believe me. It's exactly what he says. You don't know what you're asking for. Then he develops it a little bit. He says, are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they come up with another one. Oh, we're able. They didn't know what they were asking for. And half the time when we come to God in prayer, we don't know what we're doing. We don't know what we're asking for. And Paul has a great example of this as well. I think I have that verse for you here because in his own life, and once again from the book of 2 Corinthians, he says, so, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. That took some grace to write that, I think. Do you? That's hard to write those words. And he says three times. So he, he was praying too. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. He didn't know what he was praying either. He thought he did. You would think he would. Paul's one of my heroes. I would think he knows what he's praying, but he says he didn't. Because the Lord came back to him and said, no, that isn't it. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul said, here's what I learned. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so God has given to us his spirit to help. And he mentions the example of prayer, but folks, you know, really, that's just one example. That's just one thing that kind of points out how little we know and how weak we are. And if you think about this, this broken world in which we live, when these things come our way and they, and they confront us, what do we really know? I mean, if, if we really had what we would wanted, we'd ruin everything. We would ruin everything. I often think to myself, you know, I really know what the weather ought to be tomorrow, but it's a good thing I'm not running the weather. It's a good thing God is running the weather, because God really does know what he's doing. And so what is this telling us? Well, it says the answer or the response that we need to have to this is to lean confidently. God offers us help. I want to tell you, I, I got a little tickled when I thought about this. I was trying to think about how would I just sort of illustrate what I'm trying to say to people. And I remembered back years ago we had a, an active shooter scenario at our Christian school. And most of our classroom facilities were on the lower level. And wouldn't you know, we had this active shooter scenario not when all the, not when all the students were there. We had it for the staff, for the teachers and for the church staff. How are we supposed to respond? How are we supposed to act if that situation ever came to us? Well, we had a guy in our church who was a security consultant, goes all over the country doing this kind of thing. So we had a, we really had a good context to, to learn from and he put this thing on. Well, wouldn't you know, I drew the lot to be a casualty. And so, you know, when the, when the gong sounded or whatever they did for this thing to, you know, to, to unfold, 
Here I am down here on this lower level. It's, it's the semi-darkness, and I'm lying on the floor. I'm a casualty. And I, you know, I had to do that until somebody came for me. Well, I thought, well, you know, if I've got to do this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play it to the max. So this guy, this guy, I don't remember now who it was, comes for me, and I'm laying there like this on the floor. Well, let him pick me up. And he leaned down there and got a hold of me, and I, I kind of fastened onto him a little bit, you know, because my pulse was still there. And he got me up on my feet, and I just leaned into him. I mean, I leaned something fierce into him. And he finally got me up those stairs and ready to go out the main door. And the guy was standing there, was running the scenario, and he says, wow, Pastor, he said, you really played that well. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, you know, that's kind of how I need to lean on Jesus. You look in our songbook, you'll see that song, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. You know, everybody knows that song? But if you look in Rejoice Hymnal, there's a little chorus that's on the page right before it. And it's called Learning to Lean. That's a great little chorus. I don't think I've heard that since I've been here. Maybe we'll sing that sometime. Maybe we know it, maybe we don't. But it's easy to, look, to learn the chorus. The learning to lean isn't always so easy to learn. All right, so let's come to the last thing. And this is the assurance of providence. And so when we come to verse number 28, here's one of the most profound words in the Bible, and. Did you ever look at that and you just, you don't pay much attention to it? So, I mean, some people, some people really look at the word but, and that has a lot of significance. And, and there's, there's a lot of good sermons that have been preached about but in the Bible. Not too many on and. But you know, this word really is important because what's going on here is Paul says, I'm not done yet. I've talked about the right response you need in perspective. And I've talked about the right response to the help that I offer you. But I have to talk about the right response to God's providence before I'm done. And this is not burying the lead. You know, if you, if you take journalism, they tell you, don't do that. Don't bury the lead. That's the guy that you, he calls you on the phone, and he starts telling you, I mean, computer people are famous for this, but I'm not picking on anybody. But, you know, they, they've done all this research, and they'll, they'll start telling you about this and this and this and this, and you're holding the phone about this far away from your ear. Just tell me what the bottom line of why my computer doesn't work is or whatever. They, and they bury the lead. So you're not supposed to do this. This is not what Paul's doing. This is more of the idea of a crescendo, you know, like in music or something. That's what this is. I mean, he, he saves the best until last. And so he says, and. And then we get this Paul uncertainty. We get this statement. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And what's providence? talked to you about this a number of times, but providence is God's all-wise management of our affairs. It overlaps with God's sovereignty. Sovereignty deals more with control, and providence certainly assumes God's sovereignty and control. But providence is the word that we use to single out the Christian truth that has to do more, not just with God's sovereignty, but with his management. Management of what? Well, right now, tonight, I want to think about our affairs. What goes on in my life and what goes on in your life? And God is managing that. That's what this verse is all about. Now, there's a lot in this verse. 
But let me try to distill it with this statement that I've given you here, and then we'll talk a little bit about this. So you, I've given you three things. It includes, blends, and uses all things for our good. So what's going on? It includes. Well, do you notice in the verse that Paul says all things? It includes all things. What's really meant by that is the scope of God's providence. What is the scope of God's providence? Well, since it encompasses everything, all things, it means that there's nothing bigger than God. I mean, it's not like God is only able to manage the certain things. No. What this is really talking about is there's nothing that's too big for God to control and to manage, and there's nothing that escapes his notice. There's nothing in your life too small for God to be aware of either. So it includes all things. When, when we talk about God's providence, yeah, I remember when we grew up in the Presbyterian church, we had a minister on one time, and he said, well, you know, you, you, you really shouldn't pray about little things. Don't bother God with that. And I don't know why, as a little kid, that stuck out in my mind, but, man, I thought later when I started to know the Lord and started to study the Bible, I thought, that guy was crazy. I mean, he plumb crazy. I mean, to me, yeah, I mean, it's, it's self-evident you're going to pray about the big things. I love praying about the small things. I love praying about, Lord, I can't find my pen. I'm serious. I'm, I couldn't tell you. My wife will bear me witness. I couldn't tell you how many times I get upset if I've lost my pen. And I just have learned over time, calm down. The Lord knows where your pen is. And I pray about that. And you know, most of the time, let me check, be sure it's here. It is. Most of the time, I mean, within 10 minutes of that prayer, I find it. I mean, one time I found it behind my ear. <laughs> that guy was crazy. I mean, there's nothing too big. There's nothing too small. And then notice I talk about it blends. Most of you have a blender in your kitchen. So you get the, you get the concept of blending things. Where am I getting this from? Well, it says in our translation here, work together work together. Here's the really neat thing about that verb. That verb in the original is where we get our English word synergy. Synergy. That's one of those words that really isn't that big but sounds big. It's one of those things that you kind of guess you know what it means but are you really sure you know what it means? So I'm just going to offer you a simple practical definition of this tonight because what we're really doing now is we're talking about the nature of God's providence. God's providence works by synergy. What's that? Well, synergy is when two or more things work together to achieve a result that's greater than the parts. And nowhere is God's working of providence more evident than when God blends not the good things, not the things that we think are good, not the things that we can already see are advantageous, but the things that don't seem to be that way. When God is able to control those things and blend everything that's going on in our lives so that it produces an effect far greater than the parts all put together, this is what God is doing. 
this is what this is talking about. Well, I, I'm just, I'm not going to be highfalutin tonight. I'm just going to use a simple illustration. You know, I get up in the morning to go meet with the Lord. Half the time, and I, for years I've done this, I've, in fact, ever since college. I, got, I trained myself in that habit, and I've never broken it and don't intend to. But I get up early to meet with the Lord, and usually I'm, I'm ahead of anybody else, at least in the getting up in our house. And I come out, and half the time I don't even feel saved till I get my coffee. So I go there. I mean, that's the first place. I don't go for my Bible the first thing. I go for the coffee machine and push that button. And that thing starts, and while it starts, I'm fumbling around getting the things together. Well, I don't know about you, and I don't mean to rain on anybody's parade, but you know coffee's bitter. So I don't drink it black. So I, I don't mean to rain on your parade, so you just have to kind of bear with me tonight. I'm, tell, I'm the one telling the story. This stuff comes out of there, and the only time I drink it that way is when I've got a fasting blood test. Doctor said you could. Then I forced myself. Other than that, I go there to the refrigerator, I get the half and half out. I get the coffee made out. Most of the time, hazelnut, thank you. I get the sugar. Till that thing gets done, I bring that cup over there that, I should admit, it's a mug. I bring it over there and I start putting in just the right amount of sugar. I know. I mean, I've done this long enough. I know just the right amount of sugar for the particular coffee I'm drinking at the time. Then I put in just a dash of half and half, just so that it turns it from being black to a little dark color, a little cream color, but dark on the dark side. Then I put in an, a splash and then another splash of that coffee mate. Then I get that plastic spoon. I get a plastic spoon because years ago, when we lived in the, in the house in Pennsylvania, my daughter told me, Dad, I can hear that spoon clanking in the cup in the morning. So I get out a plastic one and I stir that up and I take a sip and I go, oh, that first cup of coffee in the morning is the best thing of the day. And I get two or three belts of that down. Then I go get my Bible. Then I start reading the Bible because then I'm able to, I start coming online by then. See what I mean? I'm, what am I saying? I'm saying, well, I take something bitter I put something sweet, I put something bland, and I put something sweet again, and stir all that up, and you know what? The sum of the parts is better than any one of them on its own. I don't like black coffee on its own. I don't really think I want a spoon of sugar in my mouth on its own. I sure don't want to drink coffee, mate, on its own. But you put that stuff in the right proportions, and it's good. That's what God does. You know, I admire God. He's the master chef. And then uses. What do I mean by this? Well, he says for good. God puts all this stuff together and comes up with something good. That's really something, isn't it? And not only does God do this, as we're talking about the nature of providence, we're talking now about the purpose of providence because he does it for a good outcome such that nothing is random and nothing is wasted. It's all, all these things he uses for our good. And finally, in its or next to last, in its application, I would simply point out, you know, God's providence, providence extends across the whole scene of creation, but we're not talking about that now. This is kind of, about, kind of like revelation. There's both special revelation 
and there's general revelation. So general revelation has to do with just what's true in the world, what you can learn from looking around in the world. You need special revelation. You need the, the revelation of God's word to understand how to be saved. And there's general providence and there's special providence. And the reason that I know that this is something special, this is something, what we're talking about now is something he reserves for his children. And the reason I know that is because Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, for those who are the called according to his purpose, God works all things together for their good. There's something special about this because this is for God's children. And you say to me, because I'm going to close the message now, but you just say to me, well, you know, that sounds awfully good. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure because Paul says, and we know. That's the dependability of God's providence. It's certain. We know because he's baked it into his eternal plan, which is what he's talking about in verse 29 when he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Into that eternal plan, by which we know that, number one, God determined before eternity whom he would save. Number two, he determined the purpose. He determined the people he determined the purpose. What's the purpose? To, he wants to conform us to the image of his son. And he also determined the process from all eternity past. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And into that eternal plan, that unbreakable, eternal, sovereign plan, God baked in all these things that go on every day in this broken world in the lives of his children. And nothing's going to derail that. Folks, I have often said over the years, I reflect on this, you know, this is easy preaching, hard living. It's easy to stand up here and talk about these things when everything seems to be balmy, when there are fair winds and following seas. But boy, oh boy, when the wind starts to blow and the waves start to rock the ship, it's a different story. And it's easy to become disoriented. It's easy to doubt. It's easy to lose your focus. And God says this is something you need to have settled. You need to know. So here's the thing. You can't look around because if you look around, you'll be discouraged. You can look back. If you take just a moment, don't do too much of this, but if you look back, you'll find that God has never failed you. Then you can look forward. Paul says in verse 23, and not only creation, but we ourselves groan eagerly waiting for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. You can look forward. But what we really need to do sometimes is just to look beyond you have to be able to look beyond what's now, what is now the seen and look to the unseen, which is eternally real. You know, some time ago I read the story about an evangelical. He told this. He was walking down the street in New York City. And he was on Fifth Avenue, and he stopped at a window, a, a shop, a store window. 
he was captivated by this, this mannequin and how lifelike she seemed. And he stopped to look. And all of a sudden he realized why he was so captivated. She blinked. She wasn't a mannequin. She was real. And he stood there and was looking. And as he stood there and he was looking, other people saw him looking, so they stopped and kind of figured out what was going on. And you know, this is people, isn't it? Some of them started beating on the glass. Some of them started waving their arms around, trying to get this woman distracted. Jumping up and down, all kind of crazy things. And you know what? That woman had a decision to make. She had to figure out if she was trying to please her employer or she'd try to please those people and give some reaction to them. And that's just what the devil's all the time doing, I'm telling you. The devil will do everything he can. He'll make faces at you. He'll wave his arms. He'll jump up and down. He'll scream. He'll holler. Anything to distract you from keeping your eyes focused on Jesus and on these eternal verities in God's Word. I'm going to leave you with this, because I like short, terse things that people have said well. And Corey Tenboom said this, and Lord knows Corey Tenboom knew something about suffering. She put it this way, look around and be distressed. Look inside and be depressed. Look at Jesus and be at rest. Father, help us tonight in all of our weakness, in all of our infirmity, Help us to remember the right perspective. Help us to remember the help that you provide for us. That we lean in. And help us to have the right response to your providence such that we know that we may be assured of it. Would you encourage us? Would you help us? Would you bless us? For Jesus' sake, amen.